Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to our study of Daniel. We are so thankful that you have joined us and look forward in this episode to giving a brief overview of this great book that we'll spend the next number of episodes exploring together. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is a remarkable book, and we're going to walk through some of the themes, but I wondered as we begin, if you might just share with us personally, as you've memorized and meditated on this book, how has the book of Daniel been helpful to you in your Christian life? Well, first and foremost, all of Scripture is given to bring us to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and it does that by presenting the infinite greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ. And this book, Daniel, has, I think, one of the greatest prophecies, maybe in some ways the most significant of all the prophecies in the entire Bible about Jesus. It is the one that Jesus quoted when he was on trial for his life before the Jewish nation, as he predicted the second coming, uh, his own second coming in glory on the clouds of heaven, uh, quoting Daniel 7. And so Daniel 7 is the picture of Jesus as both son of man and son of God, uh, a glorious uh, figure worthy of of worship, worthy of being served by the entire world, uh, basically is the predecessor to all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He was given, the Son of Man, given sovereign greatness and power and glory by God in Daniel 7. And so I think this is, it is this, for this reason, Jesus consistently called himself Son of Man. I think he wanted us to read the Daniel 7 uh, prophecy of himself as human, but also as divine, uh, which is the number one stumbling block with Jesus. How could a human being also be God? And so to me, more than anything, the book of Daniel is about Daniel 7 and the Son of Man. And vision. But uh, overall, in general, as you read the 12 chapters, it seems to be uh, set in the context of human governments, of the exile to Babylon and of the mighty empires, the Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian empire, and how the Jews functioned there and how God's sovereign plan was actually established and, and expanded using Gentile nations. And so God's sovereignty over human government and Jesus's reign over all uh, kings as he himself is the the King of Kings and Lord of Lords are some of the great themes of this incredible book of Daniel. Andy, how has this book helped you in your own Christian walk as you consider the world around you and events of our own time, uh, thinking about some of the themes you just elaborated, God's sovereignty over human governments, the hope that we have in Jesus as Son of Man, the divine God-man. How has this book helped you to navigate this world in your Christian life? Well, I think the book itself breaks into two main sections. Daniel 1 through 6 is Daniel along with his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and how they function in a Gentile court. They are in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and then uh, at the end in the court of Darius uh, the Mede. And so we have a sense uh, then of the Jews in exile and uh, how they were uh, used by God to, as counselors to the king. And they were used by God to stand up for holiness. And so uh, Daniel 1 through 6 is how 
uh, holy people or how people can be holy in a pagan context. And we live in an increasingly pagan um, nation. I know people don't think of America that way, but it is becoming increasingly pagan. And so the idea of how we can be godly in very ungodly settings is helpful for me. Uh, Daniel 7 through 12, the apocalyptic visions there show me, and also Daniel 1 through 6 as well, God's sovereignty over the rise and fall of Gentile nations and how God actively rules over all nations for his own glory and especially to establish the kingdom of his son Jesus Christ, as we'll see in Daniel 2 and in other places, how God in the days of those kings sets up a kingdom that will never end. And that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So as I look at uncertain times now, especially in the American uh, scene uh, with government, and we look at how polarized uh, we are politically, how we have conservatives versus liberals politically, and uh, Christians tend to be conservative. And uh, we look at uh, presidential races, we look at local politics, state politics, governorships, et cetera. And we could be easily discouraged about the overall direction of government in our country. And we can become fearful. And I think the book of Daniel is a remedy to that. We look at God who rules actively over openly pagan empires that are aggressively hostile to the people of God. And God rules over them. Uh, he sits enthroned above them in Isaiah 40. He laughs at them in Psalm 2. Uh, the book of Daniel kind of unfolds those kinds of things. And so uh, it it's, gives us, I think, a great deal of comfort, consolation, and confidence as we look at what's going on in our world today. Now, Andy, you mentioned the context of this book. Uh, remind us, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where uh, these Israelites are in exile and they're facing these very concerns? Right. I think the book of Daniel uh, establishes the importance of history. Uh, I would say uh, overall in the 66 books of the Bible, we see how vital history really is. Um, history is the, the unfolding of events, uh, things that happened before us, uh, things that are predicted afterwards. We wouldn't call them history if they haven't happened yet. But as we look back, uh, we realize a lot of the Old Testament is history, the history of the Jews, of the Jewish nation. And uh, history has meaning. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's a sequence of events that God established in his mind in his uh, sovereign will before the world began. And so history matters. Now, you asked a question of history. Where is this book of Daniel positioned in the unfolding history specifically of the Jewish nation? And uh, this is an exilic book, a post-exilic, or not post-exilic, but uh, it is a book of the exile of the Jews. And the Jews... Uh, as a nation, were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They went down to Egypt um, during the time of Joseph uh, and Jacob, and they were established there, and they were in that nation for 400 years as slaves. Uh, they were enslaved, and then God brought them out through Moses with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, as it said, through the 10 plagues, the Red Sea crossing, and all that. God brought them to the brink of the promised land. He gave them his laws, the 10 commandments, and the laws of Moses in general. And they were to get the promised land on condition that they would obey the laws of Moses, that they would obey the covenant that God had established at Mount Sinai. But they refused to go in under the 10 spies. They refused to enter. And so they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. And then they went in under Joshua and they took control of the promised land by amazing military conquests established by the power of God when the walls of Jericho fell miraculously. And then God was with Joshua and the Jews and they defeated seven nations more powerful than the Jews. And they took over 
the promised land. But as we see in the book of Judges, they consistently reverted to the pagan religions of the Canaanite peoples. They became idolatrous and God had to punish them. And in the book of Judges, we see again and again, God punished the Jews. As he said in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, God predicted that this would happen. If they made him jealous by um, those that which were not gods, he would make them jealous by a people that were not an, a, a nation, namely the Gentile nations. He would use Gentile conquest to come in and, and discipline them. We see them in the book, see that in the book of Judges, and then we see it in the history of First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles, God used the Philistines or he used uh, the Arameans or the Assyrians. He used other nations to come and, and punish the people. Again, threatening them that if they didn't shape up, if they didn't repent, he would eventually kick them out of the promised land. And so in due time, uh, the nation divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern, southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel immediately went idolatrous and never turned back. And for 390 years, according to the timeline in the book of Ezekiel, they were overtly idolatrous. Finally, God exiled them through the Assyrians. And the northern uh, kingdom was exiled by Assyria. The southern kingdom held out for another century or so, uh, but they also were idolatrous. And in due time, uh, through Nebuchadnezzar and through the Babylonians, they were exiled. They're exiled to Babylon. And that ended basically uh, Jewish sovereignty over the promised land, complete um, unfettered sovereignty to this very day, uh, what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. And so this uh, book was written shortly after the major exile to Babylon happened when the nation has the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom has been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and the uh, temple vessels uh, were taken from the temple and brought to Babylon, and the temple itself destroyed, and a very small remnant of Jews was brought to Babylon uh, in exile, and Daniel is one of them, and so the story begins there. Now, Andy, you've alluded to some of the major themes, but I wonder if we could just unpack these a little bit more because it's really going to be helpful in laying the foundation for where we're headed over the next number of weeks. Mm -hmm. Let's start with supernaturally accurate predictive mm -hmm. prophecy. This is something that's significant for us in our Christian life. Uh, how should we uh, look at this book in light of this theme? First of all, only God truly knows the future, um, God and those to whom God tells the future. So we can know the future if God tells it to us. Um, but God alone knows the future because God is sovereign. And so Satan may will to do something and God will say no, and it won't happen. Uh, humans may will to do things, uh, many of the plans of a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. So God alone knows the future. I was at a setting recently at a um, maximum security prison in, in uh, the Houston area, and uh, one of the inmates came up and he was not a Christian um, and he was kind of pushing back on something I'd said and he said other religions have predictive prophecy I said no they don't and I know that they don't because of Isaiah 40 to 49 those 10 chapters God again and again says I'm the only one that can tell the future. Bring in your idols. Let's mm -hmm. see if they can do it. They can't. And why is that? Because God is sovereign. And so I know that the Mormons don't have predictive prophecy. I know that Islam doesn't have predictive prophecy. I know that, um, you know, other religions, Buddha, Buddhism doesn't even care about, you know, time and space and history and any of that. It says it's all an illusion. So they're not making predictive prophecies. Hinduism is similar. And so, no, um, Christianity alone makes predictive prophecy. And this uh, is an apologetic defense for the truth of Christianity is predictive prophecy. And so the prophets came and the prophets didn't just foretell the future, but the most significant thing they did 
was foretell the future so that they could identify themselves as prophets. In Deuteronomy, it says, you may say, how can we know if someone is a true prophet? And basically, if what they have said about the future comes true, then you'll know. And so fundamentally, predictive prophecy in general established the Jewish prophets as uh, spokes. Uh, spokesman for God. But the book of Daniel is unique in that it gets meticulous, even just stunningly meticulous about the rise and fall of the of the nations that were coming. Uh, not even the most significant prophecies are the most meticulous ones. I think about Daniel 11, in which I think there are like 104 specific predictive prophecies about the intertestamental period in which the Greeks were running Palestine. And you have a northern Greek kingdom fighting against a southern Greek dynasty, the Ptolemies against the Seleucids. Most Christians don't even know about these people. They're not the most significant. But God was flexing his prophetic muscles saying, watch what I can do. And so Daniel 11, though it's not the most significant predictive prophecies, is the most meticulous. Like I said, well over 100 hmm. predictive prophecies that the king of the north, king of the south will do this, then he'll do that, then this will happen, then that won't happen, then the other thing will happen next. It's unbelievable. God can do this. Um, the most, I would say, independently verifiable predictive prophecy is the rise of Alexander the Great. Most non-Christians know about Alexander the Great, one of the most significant figures of the ancient world, along with Julius Caesar. Alexander the Great, his, his specific rise to power and how he reigned over the world so rapidly and then at the height of his power was cut off and his kingdom divided into four. Um, all of those things exactly happened. That's predicted clearly in Daniel chapter 8. As a matter of fact, the prediction in Daniel 8 of his destruction of the, of the Medo-Persian Empire is so specific that skeptics say, look, there's no way that could have been written beforehand because mm -hmm. they would have to accede to uh, a miracle, yeah. uh, predictive prophecy. So those things. But I've already said the most significant uh, by far predictions in the book of Daniel center around the rise of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son of Man vision in Daniel 7, and the prediction of the rise of his kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, which would smash the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw that represents, frankly, the rise and fall of the world, of empires coming one after the other. This stone cut out but not by human hands stat smashed the statue on its feet of clay and turned it into a pile of chaff that the wind blew away and left no trace. But the rock cut out, but not by human hands, became a kingdom that filled the whole world. Um, that is a kind of a summary of all of human history. Hmm. And so I think predictive prophecy is a major theme in the book of Daniel. You know, another theme is uh, Daniel's godly character. Often what many, if not most people, think of when they think of the book of Daniel. Uh, talk a little bit about the godliness of Daniel and his example that we'll see in this book. I would say other than Jesus Christ, Daniel is the only individual that, of which much is written. So we have a lot of information who never sins in the Bible. Uh, though he confesses to national sins that he says he participated in as a member of the Jewish nation, we have sinned, we have done. So he, he's not claiming to be sinless, but he, there's no examples of him doing any sins. Hmm. As a matter of fact, he's under intense pressure and still doesn't sin. So it's he's a remarkable individual, um, one of one of the great men of the Bible. Uh, so much so that in Ezekiel, God singles him out along with Noah and um, 
and Job as uniquely holy. If any of these, if either of these three men were to stand before me, as God tells the prophet Ezekiel, I still would punish the land. And so Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. So that's the greatness of Daniel. He was a remarkably holy individual. He was a man whose whose passions and appetites were were he were subject to his his religion to his commitment to holiness in Daniel one, uh, he resolved to not defile himself with the king's foods. He lived above those kinds of things, and yet he's in the, he's immersed in luxury and and power and and wealth, gold chains and robes and fine food and all that, and it never tainted him. He was a a man highly esteemed by angels, so a remarkable individual. To a lesser degree, we see the same in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, as they resolved that they would not, they would join Daniel in his in his personal holiness in Daniel one with the eating aspect. He persuaded them, um, and uh, they were men of prayer in Daniel two, and uh, also resolved to not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's um, golden image in chapter three. With great courage, they were, they would rather die than um, violate. Um, the command against idolatry. And so we see pictures of personal holiness in the halls of power. So what does that say to me? You could be a Christian in government and you can stand firm for your Christian faith and you can stand firm in your prayer life and in your holiness and your commitment to the Bible and still be a remarkably effective administrator or governmental official. So it is possible to be in the halls of power and not be defiled by it. Andy, connected with predictive prophecy, you mentioned God's sovereign control over all nations and all history. Within that, there's this theme that shows up in the book of Daniel that God is glorified by his personal dealings with Gentile rulers. Talk about the rulers that God interacts with in this book and how astounding some of those vignettes are as we walk through. Right. So we first have an extended case study of God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And so I, I think, not everybody believes this, but I think that Nebuchadnezzar is in glory right now. He's not in hell, uh, despite the fact that he was a vicious tyrant uh, and willing to kill anyone he wanted to at any time. As in Daniel 2, he was going to slaughter uh, any of his counselors who couldn't tell him what his dream was and then interpret it for him. I mean, few people have that level of, of autonomy. Um, but he was the quintessential monarch, solitary ruler. And yet God worked with him, um, giving him an amazing dream and then enabling Daniel to interpret it. And then he kind of pushes back against it in chapter 3 by making this statue all of gold and forcing everyone to bow down to it and in rage wants to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into a fiery furnace. And, and then he willingly worships when God rescues them and protects them. And then in chapter four, God gives him another dream and then uh, miraculously changes his mind to that of an animal. And then seven years later, uh, heals him. And he writes one of the sweetest poems of praise there is found really in the entire Bible to the absolute sovereignty of God over human uh, kingdoms. And so I, I think God's working with Nebuchadnezzar. Also, Daniel's relationship with him, it seems in Daniel 4 especially, Daniel is very sympathetic to him. He, When he realizes what the dream entails and what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't want it to happen to him. He begs him to renounce his wickedness and to stop his 
tyrannical ways. He's very bold, Daniel is. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't get angry at Daniel, but listened to his counsel, um, you know, without without getting angry, but he didn't take his advice. And so then God had to judge him. So I think God sovereignly working to save a mighty tyrant gives us uh, the reasons why we can, uh, you know, it says in First. Uh, First Timothy 2, I want prayers to be offered for kings and for those in authority. Uh, and, you know, in Daniel 1 through 4, we can say, well, so that they could be converted, that God could actually save them. The idea is if God can save a tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar, who is brilliant, intellectually brilliant, accomplished, powerful, rich, immoral, everything's like no chance that guy's getting converted. Now God converted him. And so it's like the apostle Paul. It's like the same logic. If God can convert that person, he can convert anyone. So we see that. But we also see in chapter five, um, Daniel uh, representing God, having utter disdain for Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. And he's like, you're done. You're, you're, you're the rich fool who this very night your soul is going to be taken from you. Mm. So the fact that God can reach out his hand and kill someone instantly, anytime, um, also in Daniel 6, there's, a, I think, a very good relationship with, with Darius the Mede and, and how clearly Darius doesn't want Daniel to die. Um, he gets tricked and trapped into uh, a decree, an unjust decree that no one should pray to anyone, uh, any god except him, and he mm. signs it. And then Daniel ends up getting thrown in the lion's den, and, and Darius spends the whole night fasting and and concerned, and the next morning he's in anguish. Has God been able to save you? And, and God did save him. And so we see uh, a relationship, positive relationship, it seems, with Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, but then... Um, you know, not with Belshazzar. And so it shows that God can do what he, and Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers on earth. He does whatever he wants. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what king of kings and lord of lords means. So absolute sovereignty. And also uh, the idea that the rise and fall of nations is part of God's sovereign plan. He chooses a nation and raises it up out of the gutter, out of the dust, and makes it great. And then he humbles it and brings it back down to the to the earth again. So absolute sovereignty of God. Well, Andy, there's a lot that we will have the opportunity to discuss, so many ways that we will be able to apply this to our lives. But I think in closing, it would be helpful for us to think about maybe this question. Why should we as Christians dive into the book of Daniel and spend the time necessary to understand what is within the pages of this great book? Well, the simple answer is we have to look at the purpose of Scripture. Scripture was given to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture is given to give us faith. Um, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so we read Daniel because it has the power, along with other scriptures, to bring us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As I already said, the Daniel 7 vision of Jesus as the Son of Man is the centerpiece. That is the confession we must make. That is the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. And so the book of Daniel, together with other books, not on its own, but together with other books, um, feeds our faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. The book of Daniel also can give us fear. Uh, it is reasonable to have a fear of sin and a fear of the judgment of God, Um so that we do flee to Christ and find refuge. Look what God can do. Look what he can do to anyone. 
think of it this way, that terrifying furnace that Nebuchadnezzar made, a man-made furnace, a fire that burns for a while then goes out, terrifying as it is, is nothing compared to the fire of hell. And what Nebuchadnezzar said so arrogantly, what God shall be able to deliver you from my, my hand well, God can deliver anyone from any human hand, but if God is the one creating the fire, namely the fire of hell, and casting you therein, who can deliver you from God's hand? No one. God alone can deliver from his own hand, so the book has the power to give you fear that drives you to faith in Christ to avoid the fires of hell. Not only that, the book of Daniel has the power to give you assurance and confidence that the future is bright, that no matter what is going on with human history and human governments, God's in control. God's ruling over over it. This is a great book for teaching that. And so it gives us confidence. It gives us hope. And so therefore we can present to an uncertain, distressed, troubled world that looks at current events, that looks at at you know terrorist attacks and invasions and wars that are, are going on like Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine with Hamas. You look at current events that are going on and we could list current events in every six months. It'd be some different current event and we can become afraid. Christians, however, can by reading the pages of scripture, specifically the book of Daniel, come to a, a rock solid faith in God and a hope that the future is indescribably bright because Daniel 12 talks about the resurrection of the righteous into mm. glory. So we look at that and we're like, man, the future's bright. I want to go there. And then non-Christians will ask us to give us a reason for the hope that we have. So those are just some of the reasons we should be reading the book of Daniel. Well, Andy, you mentioned this poetic song of praise basically from Nebuchadnezzar. I want to read that for us uh, as we close today and look forward to walking through this book together. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will, among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the God that we will meet in the pages of Daniel and worship as a result of our time together. And that's our prayer, that this time would feed our faith and we would be spurred on to love and good deeds in this world as we look forward to the coming of Christ and long for that day together. We're excited for episode one, diving into the first chapter and hope that you'll join us for that. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.